You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. So a few weeks have passed since my good friend Brian Nichols went ahead and took over, uh, you know, asserted his dominance as the superior guest host over here at On The Run. I know a few weeks have passed. I've been back, but this is actually the first time I've been recording since I caught COVID. Oh, my God. I, um, I, I put out a post a few weeks ago, and I think I... I think I did a pretty fair analysis of my COVID experience. I'll go ahead and link to that uh, that post in the show notes. But uh, right now it is February 11th. And let me tell you, the COVID went away after about a week. It's the pneumonia that came with it that just hit me out of nowhere. And uh, so far I've been, I've been better. I think my voice is back. Uh, you know, I had to get back to work because those bills aren't going to not pay themselves. And, um, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been rough. I know that for about a year, I've been saying I would rather catch COVID than get the vaccine. I still honestly kind of stand by that. We're not going to get into that conversation, but what I will say is this, um, if you feel like you're having symptoms, please go get tested because this is not something that you want to pass on to somebody else. I've never had pneumonia in my life and to have experienced this and to still have it lingering uh, two weeks after I tested positive initially, um, I can only imagine what this is like for people who have um, you know, issues with their respiratory system, bad lungs, missing lungs, if you're a smoker or something like that, cancer survivor. Um, this is not something you want to pass on to those people. So I w- promise you two things. One, I will never talk about vaccines. And two, um, I will tell you that uh, this is this is a serious thing. And it was it was not fun. Uh, you know, the COVID symptoms themselves were here and there, but the pneumonia that it brought with it is, uh, I mean, it kicked my butt. Um, but it is great to be back with you. So much has changed. And what I love is that often, because we don't tie ourselves too much to current events, we can go ahead and uh, pre-record episodes in advance and stuff like that. But sometimes we have to go ahead and touch on the things around us. And when it comes to America's mindset and policies towards China, we're at a very strange place right now because I don't really think much is really changing in terms of the general American taxpayer. We're, we're not very happy with the trade policies. We're not really happy with the tariffs on both ends. We're not really happy with the intellectual property theft. We're not happy with a lot of things, especially when it comes to the human rights concerns um, regarding religious minorities and dissidents in China. Uh, when it comes to the Biden administration, however, um, they couldn't be more quick to change. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and include some links to recent stories regarding um, changes made towards China 
by the Biden administration right now. But today we have a guest who has a, a little bit more insight than I do. I have never claimed to be a foreign policy expert. And when it comes to what's going on in China, I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, that's like a 6,000 pound elephant. You got to eat that thing like one bite at a time. And it's always been something that's been a little bit intimidating uh, for me. But today um, we've got Rachel Chu on the program. Rachel Chu is a Young Voices contributor and public policy researcher. Her opinions are her own, just to let you know. And uh, you can go ahead and follow her on Twitter at Rachel Chu. Everything will be in the show notes today. Rachel, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. Somebody went ahead and sent me your article that was published over at USA Today. My grandmother stood up to the Chinese Communist Party. President Joe Biden should too. Uh, you know, welcome on to on the run. And uh, you know, for folks that haven't had a chance to read your article yet, can you kind of give us a quick rundown? Of course. Uh, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, I really love what you said in the beginning, how um, our relations with China are so complex um, that it takes a while to unpack. And that, that was actually one of the reasons why I wrote this op-ed, um, because I have a story from my family um, that I think humanizes all of this. Um, so to give you a rundown of that, um, my grandmother lived in China in an area called Sunwoi um, during the communist revolution. So that's when the CCP was first coming to power. Um, and during that time, there was something called the land reform campaign, where the communists rallied up the working class against their landlords um, and promised them equality and human rights, uh, which is honestly kind of ironic looking back now. Um, but for my grandma, she was actually working class herself. Um, but because she married a landlord, she was treated like one. And what I mean by that is during uh, four years, um, she was beaten, tortured, and starved. Um, and in that time, she really resisted and fought for her right to life and to live freely. Um, and thankfully, um, she did escape and she instilled in my family values about freedom and justice and opportunity, all of these things that she didn't have when she was in China. Um, so I personally think this story is very powerful, not just because it's my grandma and I love her, but um, also I think it really shows how those fleeing persecution truly embody the values that our country loves. So what is it specifically that you're asking the president to do when it comes to this? Because I feel that when it comes to the the persecution of Chinese dissidents when it comes to just the intentional targeting of um, you know certain groups of people in China it's one of those things that people like to talk about but it's not something that people like to talk about publicly um, you know when it comes to Apple we're still going to go ahead and continue to buy Apple products that are made through essentially slave labor when it comes to Disney they don't care how many people have to suffer as long as they can go ahead and get their tax breaks from Mulan. It seems that you've got this one side of what I consider the woke corporate world. Then you've got the politicians who I, I believe a good number of them, both Democrats and Republicans, are actually in the pocket of the CCP. And then you've got the rest of us just trying to figure out what's going on. So th this is one of those situations where it's like, how do you fix what's going on in another country, one, nonviolently, and two, in a way that it doesn't make the problem worse. Yeah, so that's a great point. And I think when it comes to China, there's multiple ways that the United States can counteract its rise. Um, so like you 
mentioned, um, there's a lot of economic tools, um, but some of those are a little bit tough to go by. Um, one avenue that I think would be uh, the most beneficial, and like you said, nonviolent, doesn't really stir up so much, is to protect those um, who are trying to flee this uh, totalitarian regime. And I think one way to do that is through asylum and refugee admissions. And that's something that we've seen over the past few years kind of dwindle down. Um, and then Biden issued a recent executive order um, upping that refugee number. Um, but something I think that is a little bit concerning in all of this is according to the morning consult um, who conducted a survey on all of this, um, that executive order was actually the least popular. So I think that says something about our social discourse, right? That um, these people are fleeing um, a regime and they champion the values that we like. They are pro-democracy, pro-freedom, yet people um, in America are still kind of unsure about all of this. So I think that plays into all of, all of this as well. I, uh, I don't talk about it often, um, it's, uh, it's not an un uncomfortable topic for me, but it's something that is just very sensitive to my family and I, but, uh, despite my name, and I think this might actually come as a shock for, for many listeners, uh, I, am actually half Korean. My grandmother was from Seoul. Um, she lived through Japanese occupation, uh, before and during world war two and her family, um, you know, I think it was half of them were slaughtered by the North Koreans and by Chinese soldiers during the uh, communist invasion of the Korean peninsula. And, um, the stories that I hear from my grandmother as well, um, having to flee that, having to, you know, just completely uproot your life and run South for the sake of survival. That's always been one of those things that I, it bugs me when people want to go ahead and ignore the impact of socialism. It bugs me when people want to ignore the impact of communism, because ultimately um, for it to really manifest itself to its truest form, it always has to be done through violence. So I completely understand that. And where I live in Virginia, we have a large Vietnamese population. We actually have an area outside of uh, Annandale Springfield called Little Saigon, because this is where a majority of, um, the, the Vietnamese refugees during the Vietnam conflict came and settled and built their lives back up. So I feel like, you know, I, I understand the plight of refugees, but at the same time, it's also one of the reasons why over the past six years when we were dealing with uh, the rise of ISIS in the Middle East and when we were dealing with, uh, you know, religious conflicts in North Africa of Boko Haram, I looked at it and I was just kind of like, you know, I think we need to have a set standard for how we're doing this because on one side, you've got Republicans who just don't want anybody coming over here. And on the other side, you've got Democrats that want everybody to come here. And when we look at the situations itself, it gets to the point of who, who, who do we feel comfortable with coming here? And when it comes to what's going on in China right now, I totally understand. They need to get out. There's no way that we're going to ever possibly reform what's going on inside of China. But um, this is something that I've always found myself not ambivalent towards, but agnostic towards because I don't have a set opinion on this. 
uh, where do you think a majority of the American people kind of sit on this issue? Because it's it seems like you have to go one direction entirely and there is no room for nuance. That's a great point. Um, I think people are really divided about this, like you mentioned. Um, but one of the great things about our country is that we can pick and choose what type of people we want um, to join our nation. And um, with that, I think comes, as you said, um, criteria and vetting and trying to understand, okay, um, how can we do this in a way that's safe and fair? Um, and I think it was Reagan who said this in um, 1981, that um refugees, that people fleeing these totalitarian regimes, that they truly understand what it means to be American um, and that we should open the door of opportunity for them in a way that's safe and fair. So I, I think that's a discussion for the congressmen and the policy experts to really hash out and determine who um, should be able to come here and what specific criteria they should meet. Um, but I think even before that, we're on that initial question of should we allow more refugees and uh, asylum seekers at all? Um, and that's something that I think has been so broken um, over the past few decades. Um, going back to my grandmother's story, she had, when she left China, she actually couldn't come to America for many, many years. Um, she went to Venezuela first. Um, and I think that just underscores how this system has been so broken for so long. And now's the time that I think we really need to come to terms with it because there are so many people suffering, um, but also believing the things that we do. And these people are going to make great Americans if we can sort this all out. What, what does it say if the United States is bringing in more refugees, but our global partners, especially, uh, you know, other NATO nations, they don't because it's this weird situation where it's like, you know, we're, we're going to keep bringing people to the United States and there's rarely a push for other Western nations to follow the same. I, I was actually quite embarrassed when it was uh, the United Kingdom that was willing to go ahead and bring in dissidents and refugees from Hong Kong who were targeted by the Communist Party. I thought, you know, if anyone's going to offer it first, especially those people who are so, you know, pro-freedom, pro-democracy, pro, you know, the values of liberty, we weren't the first people to line up and say, you know, we'll, we'll take a whole bunch and then we'll go ahead and allow you to come. But at the same time, it, it also is one of those issues where it's like we, we only have so much resources. We only have so much time and people to actually go ahead and help with the process of this. Um, when, when it comes to Europe, you know, they, they were quick to go ahead and bring in a whole bunch of people from North Africa, from the Middle East. Uh, that That's a whole separate thing itself. But it, it gets to the point where it's like, when, you know, do we just do this each time? And when do we stop? Because unless we actually stop the reason as to why they're coming over here, we're just going to go ahead and keep bringing people over. And I look at World War II as an example. It's like, yeah, you know, I, 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 I think it was shameful that we did not bring in uh, more Jewish refugees during that time, especially as, you know, they're arriving in American harbors and we're just kicking them back to Europe where they're going to die. But at the same time, it's like, you know, maybe we need to understand the root of this, which is Nazi Germany is going around trying to conquer Europe and, you know, ultimately the rest of the world. So with China, 
is is the idea that we're just going to go ahead and bring more people over as they come, or are we going to address the issues as to why they're having to come here to begin with? Because I, I don't believe in having to, you know, kind of fix up a bullet wound with a Band-Aid, so to speak. And I feel that when it comes to this, that that is really the issue. Why are they coming over? What can we do to mitigate this? And what does, what does success look like? I mean, do we just keep bringing them over? Or do we just keep, you know, pushing them into uh, the American population and trying to hopefully hope that they immerse themselves in American culture? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that was really long winded. I apologize for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. Um, so I think that that makes a lot of sense and something that I think should be at the forefront of all this, like you said, what is going on? Why do these people need to flee? And the big issue I think is the CCP. And this is what, like, they've been doing the same thing over and over and over again, using the same tactics against their political opponents. I saw that uh, with my grandmother's story and also uh, what is going on today with uh, people in Hong Kong, with the Uyghur minorities. So there's a trend that they have where they attack their political opponents with brute force. So I think, and this is part of what I had in my op-ed as well, that accepting more people who really believe the things that we believe in, who are going to make our country great, that is part of a larger strategy of getting tough on China. And the reason for that is these people have suffered and really endured under the communist regime. But once they come to America, they thrive and they succeed and they do well. And what does that show? By them doing well, what does that show about communism overall. It shows that it's an inferior political ideology and that really hurts the CCP. So that's why helping people who are trying to escape really has two uh, end results. One, we help them. And two, it attacks China in a way that really hurts. One of the things that has always kind of bothered me. And I think this is kind of a, a silence issue, so to speak. We don't have a great track record of helping out people when it comes to, you know, bring them to United to the United States, trying to help them get their lives situated. Um, I, I look at Iraq as a big example. And, you know, when we look at the number of Iraqi interpreters uh, who, you know, fulfilled their contract with the U S army, I'm sorry, with the U S government at the time, and they were allowed to go ahead and seek asylum in the United States. When we actually look at the number of them that have been able to come over, we're only looking at maybe um, a few hundred because what we tried to do is we kept trying to extend the deal. We kept trying to make it harder and harder because ultimately we didn't want these people to be a problem. And I do feel incredibly bad for for the select Syrian refugees who were brought to the United States, because I think vice news actually did a pretty decent job of showing what life was like in the United States as a, as a refugee. And, uh, you know, life is not glamorous. It's not the, the welfare gravy train that a lot of people think it is. Uh, you don't get much money where you get to live is not that great. And when it comes to actually getting support in terms of, you know, what resources, what utilities are out there, um, you know, our bureaucrats tend to, you know, just bring them here and dump them here and hope that they kind of get along. 
Um, do you feel that the United States, especially right now amidst a pandemic and, and everything else, I mean, gas alone is going to hit $4 within a few months. I mean, people are going to start losing their minds when that happens. Do you feel that, you know, with our track record and with our current environment, we're actually going to be able to help those people and not just make their lives a continued struggle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, first off, I want to say off the bat that um, the pandemic kind of throws a wrench in this and that there are things that we're going to have to sort out in terms of safety um, that really weren't issues before. So um, I just want to put that out there up front. Um, But then also... I've got a little COVID trauma, if you have. But I think what these people are going through currently is so much worse than what we have in America right now. And I think because we live in America... We take a lot of this for granted, but I want to give the example of the Uyghur minority population uh, currently in Xinjiang. Um, They are being persecuted because of their faith, because of just who they are and where they live and um, their customs and traditions, um, because they are considered a threat. Again, because they are an ethnic minority, um, they are surveilled uh, with cameras, with GPS trackers, um, the data on their cell phones is being tracked. Um, and many of them too go to these uh, re-education camps. Um, China calls them schools, but they're not allowed to leave. Uh, they can't practice their re- religion. And most of all, they committed no crimes yet. They're stuck there. Um, so I think that says a lot about the current conditions that they currently have. Um, and if people like them, people who are getting persecuted and targeted by the CCP, if they have the opportunity to come to America, I think that's going to be leaps and bounds better than where they are right now. And not only that, they're not going to be a burden on society. They're actually going to contribute and they're going to love our country. They're going to be better patriots and understand freedom more than the average Joe. I I actually agree with that. I know that might tick off some of my conservative listeners, but like when, where, where I live outside of the beltway of DC, like the people that have actually witnessed communism, the people that have actually come from, you know, incredibly hard to live in developing nations, they, they appreciate it a lot more. And I mean, you know, I would rather, I would, I would rather take a hundred refugees that understand what that life is like uh, versus listen to a hundred, you know, Americans who have been born and raised here who think that Bernie Sanders is going to go ahead and prescribe them everything they need to live a, a happy and prosperous life. Because, I mean, it's just the, the, the disconnect is what bothers me so much. Um, when it when it comes to China broader, though, um, as somebody that was a Trump supporter, I do admit that when it came to actually helping with, you know, human rights efforts overseas, I actually think he did some good. But when it came to other things, I I don't think he did as well. I think he kind of failed on that front, especially when it came to bring in people in Hong Kong who were being targeted for, you know, for protesting, who were being targeted for having, you know, opinions that were frankly going to get them killed. Um, that was an issue. I think when it came to a lot of what's going on in North Africa and the Middle East, uh, we, we should have been able to bring in more people. So I think when it comes to that, the Trump administration failed on that effort. However, when it came towards when it, when it came to his attitude on China, when it came to economics, when it came to uh, defense and things like that, 
th- that is what scares me right now because it seems like we've almost completely pivoted under the Biden administration and it hasn't even been a full month yet. Well, by the time this comes out, it'll been a full month. But I mean, it's like we just pulled a complete 180. Why do you think now is a better time than maybe, you know, the, the last four years? Because when it comes to Joe Biden, even during the Obama years, you know, they, they, they weren't even that great on it. So I, I don't, I'm not I'm not necessarily as optimistic that we're going to see these results under this administration or even if Trump had won a second term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I feel like I have to be optimistic. I really want to see change. Um, and I think that this time right now is really ripe for change. Um, and in regards to what's going on in Hong Kong, so there was the national security law that was passed last year. And that really showed that the CCP is trying to encroach on Hong Kong's freedoms, even though they're supposed to be hands off until 2047. So there's so much going on in terms of how these people are being uh, persecuted, how China is coming after them and really trying to assert their control, that this is an opportune moment to help those before it's too late. And things have been escalating over the past few years, but I think now, now more than ever, we're seeing that there's so many populations that are at risk, Hong Kong, Uyghurs, many others, that we need to be talking about this with more urgency than we have before. Yeah, and I mean, when I I went to Liberty University and quite often we would have Chinese pastors, we would you know, somehow they get smuggled into the country and they would come and speak to us about the persecution of Christians in China. And, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that I, I keep kind of reverting to is how, how does how does this actually impact the, the Communist Party, though? Because it almost seems like we might be doing them a favor by bringing more of the people they don't like. And then for the people that are still there, things will just get worse because now they get to double down even more. Because, I mean, we're dealing with – I think it's still the the largest population of people in the world. We could take a few thousand or hundreds of thousands or maybe even a few million, and I, I, I don't know if that makes a dent or not in terms of changing their behaviors. Mm-hmm. So there was a quote that I put in the beginning of my op-ed, um, and it was from Xi Jinping um, that he said at Davos last month. And it showed him threatening Biden, essentially, where he was saying that he wanted not just the economic control, but he wanted that social control. He wanted Biden to be afraid of him. And that really shows the mindset of the CCP, that the resources, the trade, all of that, that's good. That's what they want. But that's not all of it. They also want that social control. So when people who oppose the CCP Uh, currently under China's rule, when they leave and they go and they tell everyone, hey, the CCP is not as great as they say they are, that has a big impact. And I think because we haven't seen enough of it yet, not enough people have been able to leave and they really get stuck in that biased judicial system that we're not seeing the full impact that refugees can have once they leave China. So, so how does that look, though? Because in, in, in Europe, for example, once you go ahead and cross into another nation's borders, most of the time, if you can go ahead and 
pull out that refugee status if you're able to get it. Uh, they, they keep you there. They house you. They go ahead and make sure that you know you, you can begin to move on if your life in some way. With, with China, though, and its surrounding countries, most of the time I feel like they're going to send you back. Like I, I look at North Korea as a big example. If you run south of the DMV, uh, the south – you know, the South Korean government with support from the American government, they're going to go ahead and take care of you. They, they see that as a win when more people are running, you know, towards freedom. However, a majority of, you know, North Koreans who are trying to escape North Korea, they go ahead and they run through China because there's less guns pointing at them. But when they get caught, what happens? They, they immediately just get sent back to North Korea unless they can go ahead and pay off some soldiers or guards. So my, my worry at this point is we go ahead and we set up operations and efforts to go ahead and bring in, you know, to, to, help, to help bring out more of these refugees from China. How does that happen without military intervention at that point? Because that, that's one of those other things. It's like how much of our resources, how, how many American lives are worth bringing over people from another country? And I'm not saying that in a way to dehumanize them in any way, but at the end of the day, when it comes to policy, you know, people are often seen as their worth. And that's that that's the real difficult, you know, hard thing about this. We want to do the right thing, but how do we do the right thing without making our current circumstances harder for ourselves? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um with all of this, I don't believe that military intervention would be necessary. And I, I guess maybe I have a lot of faith in the people who believe in freedom and democracy. And uh, just to give an, ex an example, going back to my grandmother's story, she tried to escape um, from the communists four times, three times she was brought back. Um, and it really took that will um, and that determination to live in a better place uh, that brought her that fourth time to freedom. But it, it wasn't that easy. Um, she really, she had to hide, she had to run, she had to do everything under the sun to be able to get to finally America. And we still see that today. So um, there were five individuals from Hong Kong um, who had participated in the pro-democracy protest. And they actually went by boat to Taiwan and then eventually made it to America where they were granted asylum. So we still see that trend of people forcing and trying to fight their way out. And I think right now the question is when they when they get out, should we accept them? Because we haven't really touched on that. And that that's still an issue because um, our immigration policies are, are so warped and they really need reform. So that question of when they get to our border should we accept them? I think that's what we really need to deal with right now. Yeah, I mean that right there. I feel like that's a completely separate issue. They're they're both they're they're both similar, but that's where things you know it, it opens up a whole hornet's nest itself. I, uh, I I grew up in a town called Sierra Vista. It was a border town in Arizona along the U.S. Mexican border, and I remember growing up. Um, you know, illegal immigration, human trafficking, it was not that large of an issue. We, we did, you did not even see 
um, you know, econ- I think they call them like economic migrants, people that were coming here for work. And I forget the other term for where for where it is when people just come to take advantage of the welfare state, so to speak. Uh, you know, with when it, when it comes to Mexico, Central America, South America, uh, the the immigration issue really became a problem when the when the when the drug war became an issue. When the drugs are going one way and the guns and the money are going the other way, and then people are being smuggled in between, um, you know, when, when it comes to you know that that's that issue with that part of the world. When it comes to you know I- immigrants from the Middle East, that was its that was also another problem because everyone thought that you know everyone we're going to go ahead and bring over from Iraq, maybe Afghanistan, Syria, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a terrorist embedded in them. So do we bring them in? With with China, I feel like no one is even talking about what the potential conflicts might be because no one actually sees it as being something that's even of a possibility. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I would say that with the people that are currently being persecuted by the CCP, they are they're just preaching what we believe in. They believe in democracy and freedom freedom. And I think the best example of this is when the protests in Hong Kong were going on, I think a year or two ago, there were so many videos of young people in the streets, um, school age kids, um, waving American flags and singing like songs um, about America. And I think that shows kind of where their head is at, that they want to just preserve the freedoms that they've always known. And that I think is the crucial difference that these people just want to be free. And that's why you don't hear so much about all those other threats because they're not really part of this. True. True. I, I have not thought of it that way. Um, this is, this is hard. (laughs) That's a giant (laughs) understatement. What, um, what what do you think the CCP would be willing to compromise in order to allow people to safely come to the United States or other countries? Because that that's where my mind instantly goes. It's like, we're going to try this. We're going to try and set up efforts. But how do we make sure we can do this without immediately pissing them off? Because if I can say one thing about China, it's that they they retaliate fast. And when they say they're going to do something – Nine times out of 10, they actually follow up on it. You never really have to guess what they're thinking. They kind of just tell you what they're going to think. So what what potential compromises could there be that, you know, don't make situ- the situation worse? Because, uh, I mean, you brought up Taiwan a moment ago. That was something that, that you know, really kind of ticked off China, that the Trump administration recognized the autonomy and the, and the sovereignty of Taiwan. I don't know what Biden thinks about that. I, I certainly know under the Obama administration, those eight years, uh, they they did not recognize Taiwan. And uh, now we're in a situation where it's like we just kind of flipped on that. And that's one of those things that's going to piss them off. So the, the one thing that I don't want to see is, you know, oh, we'll, we'll go ahead and, you know, allow some refugees to come. But, you know, cut cut communications of Taiwan. I'm not saying they're going to do that. But that's a that's a very realistic expectation within the realm of possibility right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the UK is a really good example how they've opened their doors. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen too much retaliation against them besides some sharp words. Um, so with that, I think that 
gives us kind of a green light to say, this is probably a safe move that we can make. If there's conflict that comes afterwards with China, I think as a country, uh, we're going to have to assess how does this impact our beliefs and our values and how we believe that people deserve the right to live freely. Um, And that's, I think, the balancing act that we've always had with China. But I think compared to other countries, the United States is better positioned to help those in need there um, because other countries are, I think, a bit more economically entangled with China in the sense that they don't have much leverage and that they're kind of submitting to China. Um, The United States is a great superpower. So we have a little bit more on our side to be able to help Whereas I think other countries, maybe not so much. Especially countries involved with the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. Like if we're expecting any of our African allies to jump in, well, the first thing we have to assess is how many of them fell prey to predatory lending Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. How many of them have a majority of Chinese businesses opening up? And, And I mean, the same goes for Eurasia and Europe right now. I mean, this is one of those situations where I... Europe especially. France used to be better at this, and over, I think, the last decade, they've, they've gotten remarkably worse. Uh, for France will look at their own economic interests before they look at the human rights concerns in other nations. I mean, I only have to bring up what happened when the French were involved of uh, UN support in Rwanda. That didn't really work out. The French have a pretty bad track record, and it's only gotten worse when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to our partners, do you believe that if the U.S. takes bold steps in that direction that our partners would follow? Or do you think they would look look to their own immediate interests first? Because it used to be, well, if America's defending me, you know, what what do I really have to be afraid of? I, I think, you know, in a in a post 9-11 world where we've seen what happens when we go and try and defend the and, you know, earn the hearts and minds of people, uh, that that trust isn't there anymore. People don't look to us for that type of dependence and protection anymore. So I would hope that our allies follow suit, but I think that we as a country need to set that example first. Well, I guess the UK kind of began all of this, but we can set a strong example. We just need to start. Um, And we haven't really seen that yet. Um, But I think if we draw attention to the fact that, hey, um, there are pro-democracy activists being arrested in Hong Kong, and there are people in Xinjiang that are trying to practice their faith and they're being persecuted for it and being thrown into these uh, forced camps. Um, These are things that we need to call attention to and then try to help and support in whatever way we can. So I I do believe that we are in a position that we can do it and when when we do it, that we can have a big impact and influence. Is is there anyone in Congress that you feel can you know, kind of take the lead on this issue because it almost seems that until, you know, some politician gets involved, you know, the, these issues don't really seem to get carried forward. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think any person in Congress can take up this flag and wave it. Um, this is, this issue isn't red or blue. It's more of a human one. So anyone who takes it up, who's willing to stand up to the CCP and champion human rights I think that that would be a good thing. Good point. Good point. 
Rachel, we have covered a lot of ground today, especially in an area that I'm, I'm not so knowledgeable in. So I want to thank you for taking the time to come speak to me and my audience, especially as I've been, uh, you know, muting my mic constantly and coughing like a madman. So thank you for that. Um, you know, if anyone wants to keep up with your work, if anyone wants to follow you and, you know, kind of follow up with these developments and everything, how could they do so? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. It's Rachel H. Chu. Perfect. And I will include everything in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. You've got an open door whenever there's something you'd like to discuss. Thanks so much. Well, folks, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't sound like I usually do, but I mean, these conversations, they, they, they matter. We don't just speak into a void. And when it comes to stuff like this, it's complicated. I have mentioned multiple times that when it comes to the issue of immigration and refugees, I, I don't know where I really stand on a lot of it. And it doesn't come from a lack of understanding. It comes from this discomfort that comes of discussing the policies and the potential consequences that come with it. Sometimes not having a stance doesn't mean you don't care about something. It just means that you have more to learn. And learning from folks like Rachel who are putting in the effort, who have the stories, who have um, you know the, the boldness to discuss these uncomfortable topics sometimes that they may be uh, – that's why these conversations matter. So thank you again. Please go ahead. And uh, if you're happy I'm not dead, leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Helps us get in those trending charts. Helps us expand to new listeners and keep these conversations going. As always, follow me across Al Gore's amazing internet at HeyRemso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. And I will talk to you later in the week. Be well, be safe. Good night. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 